Shalom. This is Gary Duroshinsky, Congregational Leader of Beth Ariel Messianic Congregation. Thank you for downloading our message. We're delighted to make it available to you through the generous donations of our members and friends at Beth Ariel. We know that many are struggling financially because of the challenges facing our economy, and we do not want financial issues to keep anyone from enjoying our teachings. So please continue to listen in as often as you like. But if our presentations have been beneficial to you, and you are able to provide a financial donation to Beth Ariel, whether large or small, would you prayerfully consider sending a gift in support of our ministry? You can donate online through our website at BethAriel.org. That is spelled B-E-T-H-A-R-I-E-L.org. Also, please remember to pray for us that we would be responsive to the Lord's guidance as we reach out to the lost sheep of the House of Israel in the greater Los Angeles area. Thank you, and I hope you enjoyed this message. But if you have your Bibles, look at Matthew chapter 5, verses 17 through 20. This is such a rich section. It's an exciting section to be able to share from. Messiah says in verse 17, Do not think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. I tell you the truth, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen, will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Anyone who breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law of the scribes, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. This is the second time Messiah has spoken about entering the kingdom of heaven. And this sermon that he gave, this message, this teaching on the mount is full with all kinds of important concepts for us to understand. Most importantly is Messiah's understanding of the word of God. This comes out crystal clear and is the height and it's the soul of what he's saying here. He speaks about the law and the prophets. He speaks about the purpose for his coming. He speaks about how it is that one enters the kingdom of heaven in these few verses. Now, if you look with me in Matthew chapter 5, this sermon, this teaching can really be divided into three sections. The first section is really his introduction. We've looked at two points of it, and this section brings to a conclusion the introduction. The first section tells us about what it is like when one encounters the grace of God, when one experiences and receives the good favor of God. That's what it means when he says, blessed are those who, those who experience God's grace and mercy, this is what they become like. And so he tells us they become ones who are poor in spirit. They are ones who mourn over their sin. They are ones who are moved to humility. These are ones who hunger and thirst for righteousness. These are ones who become merciful and pure in heart and makers of peace. And as a consequence, because of their association with Messiah, they are ones who will be persecuted like the prophets before them and like he was. So he tells us what kind of person a person is characterized by who experiences the grace of God in such a measure. 
He then tells us in verses 13 through 16 how these individuals are to function, what it is they are to do, how they are to accomplish whatever it is God would call them to do. And he tells us we are to function like salt and like light. Like salt, we're a preservative in our society. We might not think of ourselves as such a preserving element. In fact, some of us might think that we contribute to its decay. But the reality is that God working through us is using us to preserve our society even from the uh, sin and the wrongdoing that it could degenerate into. We are a saltiness to God's creation. Not only do we act like this preservative, but we also are ones that are to give flavor to our world. We are to enhance the world that God has created. We are to bring meaning and purpose to our world. So wherever it is that we are engaged in our world, wherever we work, whatever we do, we are to be elements that bring joy in that sphere. And therefore, as salt, we're to be flavorful. We're to enhance the world in a manner in which people can enjoy it more and people can understand it better. But not only that, as salt that preserves and as salt that brings flavor, salt also serves to purify. And we saw how the scripture utilized the word salt in that way. And so we bring holiness to the world around us. We are to be salt and we need to be mindful because we can lose our saltiness. We lose our saltiness when we engage ourselves in the things of the world, in the mindset of the world, in the values of the world, and we lose that sense of the Spirit of God working in and through us to permeate our society as God would have it. And as a consequence, we lose our saltiness, we lose our effectiveness, And we become somewhat useless in the hand and work of God. But not only are we to function as salt, but we're to function as light. The world is in darkness. And you and I have, as it were, the flashlight that can shine out on the world to bring them to the proper destination. Ultimately, our destination is not the grave. Our destination is to be with him in the kingdom of heaven. You and I have the pathway. You and I have the light. You and I have the word of God to convey to others that they might see him who is the light. And thus, I think one of the most wonderful statements Messiah has ever made is right here. You are the light of the world. He calls us the same term that he himself is. I am the light of the world, he said. And now he says, but you too are a light in the world. We are different, but similar. Yeshua is the embodiment of light, but you and I are the reflectors of his light. And as reflectors of his light, we can shine forth the pathway into the very presence of God. So how are we to function? We're to function like salt. We're to function like light. And now if those who heard him speak and those who heard him say that one can enter the kingdom of heaven by being poor in spirit, by mourning and being humble, they may be thinking in their minds, well, what relationship do do the Hebrew scriptures have to your coming? 
What relationship does the law and the prophets have? Are you telling us the law and the prophets are of no value? Are you telling us that the law and the prophets that have been written before your coming, you are now about to abolish and destroy? He wants to clarify a question he's anticipating is arising in their minds. And he wants to tell them why it is he is here. He tells us why it is he is not here, but he also tells us why it is he is here. Now, if you look at the passage in verse 17, in the Greek, it actually starts by saying, So, for do not think that I have come to abolish the law. In other words, he's giving us an explanation with regard to what he's already said. And so he's explaining to us what role the law and the prophets have with regard to his coming. Second thing we need to understand is that when he says the law and the prophets, he's not focusing, at least in my mind, he's not focusing on the 613 commandments of the Mosaic law. He's focusing on the entirety of the Hebrew scriptures, the law and the prophets. The law certainly is of significance. It is the most beautiful, the most comprehensive, the fullest revelation of the character, wonder, majesty, and beauty of God. It is that which Paul said is holy, just, and good. And so Messiah has not come to deprecate the law. He's not come to make the law inconsequential or insignificant. But rather, he says he's come to fulfill the law. Now, notice this, if you will. He says, do not think that I've come to abolish the law. Before we even look at that, look at this little phrase, I have come. Now, initially, that might not seem significant, but it is greatly significant in these passages. He says it twice. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law. Then he says, I have come to fulfill the law. Something that I recently learned and hadn't realized before is that there's only one place in all the Gospels where Messiah speaks about himself being born. In all the passages in which Messiah speaks about himself, he only once speaks about his birth. All other passages that deal with Messiah's presence, he always speaks either about having come or having been sent. Now, if you look with me in John chapter 18, you'll see the one place where he talks about his birth. In this passage, he stands before Pilate. And Pilate asks him, are you a king? And Messiah says, my kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest by the Jewish leaders. But now my kingdom is from another place. Verse 37, you are a king then, Pilate said. Yeshua answered, you are right in saying I am a king. In fact, for this reason, I was born. The only place where he speaks of his birth. And isn't it interesting, the place where he speaks of his birth is to a pagan king. Because Pilate, being a Roman, would not have understood the significance of Messiah's coming. For the promise of Messiah's coming was given to the Jewish people. So here he focuses for a moment on his birth. But to be clear, he then says to Pilate, And for this I came into the world. 
Now, this is just really weird speaking. Because when I first came, Mary Lou and I first came here to Beth Ariel, we would talk about, oh, we are going or we have come to Beth Ariel. And you would understand by that that I've come from another place. You would understand that I had existed before I arrived. If I had said I was born at Beth Ariel, well, that would mean something else entirely. But Yeshua says, I have come. Now, that phrase alone denotes a couple of things. First of all, it suggests that Messiah existed before he came. For he came from somewhere to arrive where he had come to. So where did he come from? His whole point is that he came from the Father. He came from heaven. That means he existed before he actually arrived. And that's the weirdness about Messiah, isn't it? That's the strangeness about Messiah. That's the paradox of Messiah. Micah 5.2 in his messianic prophecy of Messiah's birth in Bethlehem speaks to this point. For he says the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem. But then he tells us where his origins are from. His origins are not in Bethlehem. His origins are from of old, from of everlasting. That Hebrew expression translated into English, from of old, from everlasting, those two words put together, is the strongest way of denoting eternity in the Hebrew scriptures. You cannot speak of something being eternal any stronger than the way Micah says it in Micah 5.2. What Micah is telling us and what Yeshua is confirming is that he had existed from all of time and now at this point in time he arrives and he has come. And now he's telling us why he has come. He's come to fulfill the law and the prophets. Now this word fulfill is critical. It also suggests some things, even if we don't know the full scope of its meaning. It suggests that Messiah must be sinless. Because if he's going to fulfill it, he has to obey the law in all of its parts. Not just the law, but he has to fulfill all that the prophets had said about the Messiah as well. That means he must be the promised one. That's what he is saying. And he must be sinless because he's going to fulfill the law as well. He's going to bring to completion and fruition all that is written about him and about God's purposes for redemption throughout the Hebrew Scriptures. Now, when we talk about the Hebrew Scriptures, what is Messiah's understanding of them? Take a look at what he says. He says, do not think that I've come to abolish the law of the prophets. We'll come back to some of this. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. I tell you the truth, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Now, when Messiah speaks of the law in that verse, I think he's speaking about the entirety of the Old Testament. Because he already spoke of the law and the prophets. So now he says, everything that's written to the smallest letter, the least stroke of a Hebrew letter will be accomplished until heaven and earth disappear. So when he says the law here, he means not just the Mosaic law, although it's included, but everything else in addition to the Mosaic law. And what is he telling us about it? He's telling us that the Hebrew scriptures are the word of God. And that the word of God to the very least letter 
and to the very smallest stroke of a lever, letter have their place in God's purpose or revelation of God's purpose. In other words, what he's saying is even the minutest detail of Messiah's coming and the redemptive work Messiah will provide for us will come to fruition. Not the least aspect of his coming or his doing will fail to occur. When he says the least, the smallest letter, in some translation it says the jot. It's a reference to the smallest letter in the Hebrew Bible, which is the letter Yod. It's the 10th letter in the alphabet. If you have your Bibles, you can turn to Psalm 119. And depending on your translation, at the beginning of every eight verses, there's a Hebrew letter. That's because all of the eight verses underneath that letter begin with that first letter or that given letter in the Hebrew alphabet. Now, if that sounds confusing, let me just turn to it. So if you look at Psalm 119, verses 1 to 8, they all begin with the letter Aleph. In verses 9 through 16, they all begin with the letter Bet. So if you turn to Psalm 119, verse 73, you'll see the letter Yod. It's a letter that hangs down from the top of the line. And as you can see, it's a very small letter. It almost looks like an apostrophe. Now, if you turn back to the beginning of Psalm 119, if you want to understand what the tittle is or the smallest stroke of a pen, if you look at verse 9, you'll see all those verses, 9 through 16, begin with the letter bait. Now, the letter bait is... Made. If you look at it, it's made like this, and then the bottom line sticks out. So there's a little element that sticks out here. So it kind of curves down and then flattens out. And over here, there's a little uh, stroke <laughs> that stands out from the bait. That's the least stroke of a pen. Now, why is that so important? Well, if you turn to Psalm 119, verse 81, you'll see the letter cuff. And the letter Kaf is like a backward C, and you notice that the little end that you have on the bait is not there. If you don't have that little tittle, that little stroke, you could uh, confuse whether this is the letter Kaf when it ought to be the letter Bet. Does that make sense? So Messiah is saying the smallest letter... And the smallest stroke of of a letter that distinguishes letters one from the other. In English, a way that we see this happen is you have the letter I with a dot, and you know it's the I. If you have a capital I, you have a long stroke up and two long strokes across the top and bottom. But if you have a small L, you have one stroke, and then if you look when you're typing, it has little strokes at the top and the bottom to distinguish the capital I from the letter L. Those small strokes is what Yeshua is talking about. So he says the smallest letter and the smallest stroke all have their place in God's fulfilling of his word. This is an an illustration. It's a metaphor, you might say. It's a figure of speech. That the smallest purpose that God has, if we can call any of his purposes small, the most insignificant or apparently insignificant purpose that God has will be fulfilled, as well as the great purposes that are absolutely clear. 
In other words, Messiah is saying the word of God is authoritative. He's not only saying it's authoritative, he's saying it is completely trustworthy. That all of God's word is God's word to us. And now he tells us that Messiah has come. That is the pre-existent one has come for the purpose of not making the law and the prophets, the Hebrew scriptures, inconsequential or insignificant, but rather to show their true significance, their true and fuller purpose. He's come to fill full the law. Might be a better way of saying it than to fulfill the law. (laughs) He's come to fill fully the law. This word to fulfill is the word plero. And it's used in the sense of filling in the content of something. So, for example, you can turn there if you like. In Matthew 13, verse 49, I believe it is. Yeshua gives a series of parables. And one of the parables is about the fishnet. And he speaks about fishermen casting their nets and it becoming full of fish. The net, its contents were filled up with fish. When Yeshua says, I came not to destroy or render inconsequential the law of the prophets, but to fulfill them, he's saying that the the Hebrew scriptures are like this net. It's giving us the parameters. It's telling us what to expect and how to live. And Messiah, like those fish, would fill The scriptures full with himself, with his character, with his actions. Same word is used in Matthew 23, where Yeshua begins to castigate the Jewish leaders of his day. And he says that by their actions and by their lack of heart attitude, they were filling up the judgment of God. It's like God has an aspect by which he will judge and they're filling it up with more and more things that the Lord will judge them for. When Messiah says he came to fulfill the law, he does not simply mean to obey the law. He indeed obeyed the law. Why? Because he was sinless. After all, he has come. The sinless one has come. But when we say he obeyed all the law, we don't really mean he obeyed all the law. Because there were laws that were not applicable to him. He was never married. So the laws regarding marriage were not laws he obeyed. Because they were not relevant to him. The laws regarding sacrifices. There's no record anywhere of Yeshua offering sacrifices. Despite all the times he's in the temple, all the times that he is worshiping, all the times that he is teaching, not once does he offer a sacrifice in the temple. The law requires it, but he never does that. Why? Because he never needed it. So when we say he fulfills the law, we really don't actually mean he obeyed all the law. But all the laws that were applicable to him, he certainly did obey. 
And thus in that way, and it's interesting, Barry and I were talking about that, when James says, if you obey all the law but miss one, you're guilty of it all. Conversely, if you obey all the laws that are applicable to you and never transgress them, you obey all the law. (laughs) It's kind of interesting to think about. But Yeshua fulfills the law, and it means something more. Indeed, he did obey all the laws applicable to him, but that's not saying enough. Because that's not what the word fulfilled means. The imagery is that of one who sketches out something, and then the insides of it begin to be fleshed out. So with regard, for example, to the prophets... The prophets tell us Moses is a prophet. Genesis 3.15, the Messiah would come and crush the serpent's head. That's the outline. But Messiah comes, he fills that, and he does crush the serpent's head. He crushes the serpent's head by virtue of fulfilling the redemptive purposes of Messiah. And he will conclude that crushing when he returns. And the evil one is judged. The text tells us what to expect. He fills it with doing just that. Jacob gave prophecies over his sons. When he came to Judah, he told Judah that from you would come the promised one. That the scepter will not depart from Judah until Shiloh arrives. The one to whom that scepter belongs. And so we wait There's the sketch. Messiah comes from the tribe of Judah. He's the king of Israel, and he fills that sketch with himself. Micah, as I said before, said he would be born in Bethlehem. There's the sketch. Messiah comes, and he fills the passage in being the one born in Bethlehem who is from all of eternity. When Isaiah 53 tells us he would be the suffering servant, there's the sketch. He comes into the world, he fills it. And he indeed suffers for the sin of his people and the sin of the world. So when he says he fulfills it, he fulfills it to completion. The sketch that the scriptures present, not only with regard to those very clear passages that I said, but even ones that are not as clear. For example, Abraham offers up his son, and he says the Lord himself will provide a ram for the sacrifice, a lamb. If we first read that without the Brit Hadashah, we might not get the full impact of it. But Messiah himself would be that lamb who would offer himself as a sacrifice. In other words, we have the little Yod prophecies. We have the really big olive prophecies, Isaiah 53. We have the Yod prophecies of Micah 5.2. We have the tittle prophecies like of Abraham offering his son. All of scripture is about one thing. Now, when I was in seminary in college, they would say the scriptures are about the Jewish people. Indeed, they are. The scriptures are about the history of the world up until the coming of Messiah. And indeed, it is in many respects. Some have said the scriptures are about the moral imperatives and the way we ought to live. And indeed, it tells us that. But those are all side notes to what the heart and soul of the scripture is. For the scripture is about Messiah and about his coming. 
And when we think of the prophecies, they are sketches that he fills. And when we think of the law, they are sketches that he fills with the true intent of its purpose. And that's why he says, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, it's the first time he mentions them, you will in no wise enter the kingdom of heaven. That expression is the strongest negative in the Hebrew language. When he says, I've come not to destroy the law, strongest negative in the Hebrew language. When he says, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will in no wise, strongest expression in the Hebrew language. Now, the Pharisees in the first century were respected individuals. Today, we think less than respectfully about them because of our reflecting over time what is taught about them, or at least some of them, maybe most of them. But in the first century, these were the people individuals looked up to. Whatever we might say of the Pope, people look up to him in our day and age. Whatever we might say about some leaders in the clergy, people look up to specific clerical leaders. In the first century, they looked up with respect to the Pharisees. They may not have liked everything about them, but they were respectful before them. For Messiah to say that our righteousness must surpass theirs, that's like saying, whoa, how do we do that? These are the righteous people in our society. These are the religious people of our society. These are the people that were fasting twice a day. These were the people that had all kinds of rules and regulations so that the law might not be transgressed. They had laws and precise details about how you observe and how you are not to observe the Sabbath, how far you can walk. You could bandage an arm, but you can't be, put ointment on the arm to promote healing. You can eat on the Sabbath, but you can't cook on the Sabbath. They had all kinds of ways of trying to figure out how to actually go about doing this righteous thing. And now Yeshua says, your righteousness has to surpass that. How is that possible, given how religious, devoted, and dedicated they were? Messiah is telling us, the kind of righteousness that surpasses the righteousness of the Pharisees is of an utterly different kind. It's not the kind of righteousness you can work up, no matter how hard you try. No matter how many commandments you will observe, you cannot attain this kind of righteousness. For indeed, that's what the law was meant to convey, among other things. Paul tells us the law was not a remedy for sin. It was a diagnosis of our sinfulness. And the more we would try to obey it, the more we will find we are in need of something to help us. And that's why the sacrifices are part of the law. If we could obey it, there's no need for sacrifice. The sacrifices were a temporary covering for not if, but when we failed to obey the law. So what is Messiah talking about? He's talking about a righteousness that goes beyond because it's of a different kind than the kind of righteousness individuals think of when they're called upon to be righteous. We have similar problems. 
We oftentimes become very superstitious and we think we're not being righteous when we don't come to service as often as we should, although I'm not suggesting don't come as often as you can. (laughs) But we have these same sort of legalistic, and I call them that, tendencies that we think somehow gives us brownie points before God. And let me just be clear, they do not. It is a different kind of righteousness that must be acquired in order to enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, what Messiah does in the second part of the Sermon on the Mount, he begins to explain to us what this kind of righteousness looks like. For the scribes and Pharisees, murder, for example, was simply not taking the life of another. But Yeshua is going to fill full the meaning of the law. If you hate your brother, you have violated that commandment. We would say, wait, I didn't take somebody's life. Oh, but he says you have. When you are angry with your brother without cause, you have violated that commandment. Pharisees never would say such things. When you even look at a woman with what lustful thoughts, you have already violated the commandment not to commit adultery. In other words, Yeshua is filling full the intention of what the law was. It wasn't simply good enough to be faithful to your wife. You had to be one who wasn't distracted by others. And that was not understood by many of the religious leaders. We're not unlike this. We all talk about of how the word of God is our guide. And I wonder just to what degree that is really true. For when the scriptures talk about, for example, husbands love your wives, do we? If we don't, we don't believe the word of God. When the scripture says wives submit to your husbands and you do not, then we don't believe the word of God. We are not living out the true intent of the law, for these are laws that are given to us under the new covenant. If you are not obeying your parents and our kids are gone, (laughs) they are not valuing the word of God. And if our parents are exasperating our children, we are not doing or believing or honoring the word of God. We are not unlike the Pharisees and scribes about whom Yeshua is talking to us about. Now, if we think that that kind of righteousness is what God is looking for, let me share with you someone who knew a lot about this as we bring this to a close. But look at Philippians. Chapter 3. Now, if there was anyone who understood the law and gave us the most clear understanding of Yeshua's teachings, that's what Paul is all about. Paul is explaining to us what the new covenant involves that you and I have entered into. He doesn't call it that per se, but that's what he's doing. He's the architect. He's the Moses of the new covenant. Now, look what he says in chapter 3. He says, if anyone thinks he has reason to put confidence in his actions, in his flesh, I have more. He says seven things about himself, four things he inherited, three things he acquired. He says, first of all, 
I, ha- uh, I was circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, in regard to the law of Pharisee, as for zeal, persecuting the believers, as for legalistic righteousness, blameless, faultless. Oh my goodness. Now he tells us four things about himself that were to his credit that he had inherited. The first thing is he was a Jew. He says of the people of Israel. Second thing was he was, I don't know how to say this other than purely, fully, wholly Jewish. Both of his parents were Jews for he was a Hebrew of Hebrews. So he has a long line of Jewish ancestry that he has inherited. He was circumcised on the eighth day. So he is a member of the Abrahamic covenantal community. He is one who was of the tribe of Benjamin. First king of Israel comes from Benjamin. And it's the one tribe that that did not abandon Judah when the other ten tribes rebelled. So he comes from good Jewish stock. But then as a Jew, he became a Pharisee. In another passage, a Pharisee of Pharisees, he tells us. Further, he was zealous in such a way that he was willing to harm, maim, kill other believe, the believers of whom he was not a member as yet. And as touching or with regard to fulfilling the specificities of the law as the scribes and Pharisees denoted it, he says no one could point the finger and say, I was at fault. But then look what he says. But whatever was to my profit, I now consider loss for the sake of Messiah. What is more, I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Yeshua, the Messiah, my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them rubbish. He used the word dung, rubbish, that I might gain Messiah and be found in him. And here's the key. This is the kind of righteousness Messiah is talking about. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Messiah. The righteousness that comes from God and is by faith. I want to know him and the power of his resurrection. The surpassing righteousness that we are to have is of a different kind. It's God's righteousness, not our own. It's the righteousness that God gives to us because of what Messiah has provided for us by his death, by his life, by his resurrection, by his ascension, and by his promised coming again. It is knowing him by faith and allowing his life to have its rule in our lives. If we, and this is the great warning, if that is not true for us, we will in no wise enter the kingdom of heaven. No matter how good 
we strive to be. If it is a goodness that does not result from God's righteousness alive in us, we will not enter God's kingdom, Messiah is telling us. But if we are ones who have received Messiah, now Messiah doesn't get into all of it, but he seems to suggest what this is about when he says, I've come not to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. Part of the law is the sacrifice for sin. Part of the prophets speak of the sacrificial death of Messiah in behalf of others. So while he does not explain fully how this is provided here, he certainly intimates it by telling us this righteousness can be acquired, but it cannot be earned. A righteousness that can be received, but cannot be conjured up. It's a receiving of the full grace of God. And that is a prayer away. It is simply saying, Lord, I believe your word, as you have explained. I understand the significance of the great and little things that are said that you will fill full all of those things. And you have. And now I would bow before you and pray that what you have accomplished would be applied to my life and to my heart. And when it is, now we have the kind of righteousness that isn't of our own doing, but it is of his doing. And because it's of his doing, we can enter into his presence and to receive all of his blessings. Let us pray. Our God and Father, we thank you for the marvelous truths that Messiah has unfolded for us. They are full and they are wonderful and they're amazing. And Lord, we are grateful that your spirit is alive and can bring these truths to our minds and to our hearts. Help us to embrace what you have done in our behalf. And help us to rejoice in what the reward is. All that is encompassed in the term heaven. Your presence, your fullness, and your love. Lord, even now as we prepare our hearts to take part in the Lord's Supper... We remember that moment when he took the cup and said this, or took the bread and said, this is my body, which is broken for you, as he fully filled the promises that, re- that referred to the death of Messiah in our behalf. And then when he took the cup, he said, this is the cup of the new covenant that he was inaugurating by his death. And all who would partake of what it signified, namely his death in our behalf, would enter into the bounties and blessings of that covenantal promise. Lord, even now as we prepare our hearts 
to receive the elements that represent all of these things. We would do so as Paul instructs us in a worthy manner. And that means, first and foremost, that we've come to embrace Yeshua as Messiah. And we've recognized that He is our righteousness. And He is the one that enables us to stand before you, our Heavenly Father, and to have the promise of entrance into your abode. It means that when we think of our own lives and our own failings, to partake of these elements in a worthy manner means to bring those matters that we are aware of and to present them before him and to confess our sin that, we might, that he might cleanse us of our sin and forgive us of our sin and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So we would come reflecting on do we know you? And reflecting on is our life salt and light and a reflection of your presence in our lives? And then we would partake of these elements, praying in great thanksgiving for what you've done for us and our desire to be fully committed to live for you. For it's in Messiah's name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to our message. We hope that it serves to encourage you in your walk with the Lord and your service to Him. Do remember us in your prayers, and if you are able to provide a financial donation to Beth Ariel, whether large or small, would you prayerfully consider sending a gift in support of our ministry? You can donate online through our website at bethariel.org. That is spelled B-E-T-H-A-R-I-E-L. Thank you again, and may our Heavenly Father richly bless you as you continue to follow Him. Shalom, shalom.